in that song, we just um, we ask God for strength uh, to to live well, to glorify His name. And one of the places we find that strength is in His Word. So let's pray for His help uh, as we come just to to hear His Word again today. Lord, we've just been singing that uh, nothing has the power to save like your name. Lord, we are surrounded in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in other settings with people who need to get to know Jesus better. And Lord, we know that you've given us a calling to share what we know of Jesus with the people around us. So Lord, we pray that as we come to your word today, you'd show us more about that calling and you'd also equip us better to to do it. Amen. These early weeks in September, I'm taking three weeks to recap on the the discipling uh, mission, the, the discipling vision that's right at the heart of Kirkpatrick Memorial. And I said last week that I'd do that by dealing with a phrase that I came across in the summer. Uh, I was reading in a book about whole life missional discipleship. So last week we began uh, by thinking about the noun in that phrase, the, the word disciple. And we looked at a couple of key passages from Matthew's gospel. Um, in Matthew 4, we learned that, that Jesus wants people to follow him. We read the account of how he approached Andrew and Peter, James and John, and he he expected them to to change their lives, to fall in with him and follow him. We looked at another passage at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, and we saw there that not only does Jesus want people to follow him, he wants his disciples to make disciples. Uh, He wants them to go into the whole world inviting others to, to be following Jesus too. And we spent the rest of our time thinking a little bit about how the church here is trying to to live out that calling. There are two adjectives in that phrase, whole life missional discipleship. And I thought we'd take a couple of weeks to look uh, at those uh, two adjectives. So this morning we're going to to look at the, the word missional. And we're going to see this morning that any true disciple of Jesus Christ is on a mission. Two passages we've read already this morning. They give us some sense uh, of uh, that mission that Jesus sends his disciples on. So um, Matthew chapter 5, those uh, very famous verses. If you have your Bibles open at page 969, you may or may not know that the teaching there is part of what we've come to call the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've ever heard of the Sermon on the Mount, this, this is part of it. And the teaching of Jesus that Matthew records here um, is, I don't know if you'd noticed this before, but it's specifically for his disciples. He tells us that in chapter 1 of Matthew 5. So what we have here is a class gathering. Maybe, Maybe we could call it the first class gathering of Discipleship 101. This is beginners, uh, elementary, foundational stuff. And if you look at verses 13 to 16 of Matthew 5, uh, you'll recognize some of the stuff there, possibly. 
Christians know that we're to be salt and that we're to be light. That's well known. I think one of the reasons why that stuff has stuck in our minds so much better than a lot of other biblical material is is the simplicity of the metaphors. Salt, we know what that is. And and people in that culture, uh, salt was very important to them. And light, we, we can't live a day without appreciating the importance of, of light. Uh, so these are simple but very graphic metaphors, and I think that's helped us to take these images to heart. This morning I want to dwell briefly on the second uh, of the metaphors, that of light. And I want you to see that there's much more to it than meets the eye. This isn't just powerful because of the image itself. When Jesus calls his disciples the light of the world, he's giving them a quite staggering identity. uh, And he's drawing them into the most profoundly missional community you could imagine. You see, when Jesus called his disciples the light of the world, it wasn't just them uh, that he was giving that identity to. He took that title himself. So turn with me to John chapter 8 on page 1073. John 8. One thousand and seventy-three. Look at verse 12 there. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Flick over to 9 verse 5. It's on page 1075. Chapter 9 verse 5. Jesus is speaking and he says, While I'm in the world... I am the light of the world. So twice here, a couple of times, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. So it's it's back to this simple, profound, and powerful image. But this image, no matter how profound and powerful it is and how much we associate it with Jesus, it's not a Jesus image. It had currency and it was in the, the minds of the people before Jesus spoke it. So to see where it comes from, we need to flick back, way back. So Isaiah 60 on page 746. Isaiah 60, page 746. Look at what God says there to the people through the prophet. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Isaiah is speaking God's word to God's people and he says, you're going to draw the world to you. Isn't that just incredible and and beautiful? You're going to draw the world to you and they're going to see me in it all. We talked about some of that stuff at a bit more length before the summer in our teaching series then. God's people are to be attracting the world like, like moths to a flame, like iron filings to a magnet. 
So do you see what's going on then if we go back to those New Testament passages, John 8 and 9? Jesus calls himself the light of the world. He's reaching way back, taking Isaiah's language from centuries before, and he's applying it to himself. He's taking on the mantle that was for Israel. They were called the light of the world. They failed, but but Jesus lived among us, and he succeeded where they failed. He is the true Israel. He's the blessing that Israel were always intended to be to the nations. And then Matthew 5 is another step further. Because Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says, not only am I the light of the world, you are. I've fulfilled Israel's calling, but now as you come to me, as you join in with me in the life that I'm teaching you to live, you are becoming the new people of God. Anyone who follows Jesus Christ is part of this community, the light of, of the world. Do you see it now, folks, that all true disciples of Jesus are on a mission? The mission that God always had for his people is now the mission of those who follow Jesus. We are to be showing and telling the good news of Jesus to the world. The conclusion I'm coming to as I read stuff like this in the Gospels and read Paul's letters and the other New Testament letters and Acts is that you can't really claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ unless you've joined him on his mission. It would be a weird thing to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not on his mission. Because that's what the invitation was, to come and to follow him and to learn to be the light of the world and to be on this mission with him. That's why we read that passage from uh, Matthew chapter 10. Uh, We don't have time to deal with it today, but it, it shows us Jesus training the disciples for this work. He he gathers them around him and he says, right, here's what you're going to do and here's how you're going to do it. Jesus' time with these guys wasn't, wasn't just let's enjoy three years together. It was training for their mission to the world. And that's why we read uh, Matthew 28 last week, that great commission, where when Jesus leaves his disciples, the last thing he says to them, the thing he wants to leave them with is their mission to the world because you can't be a disciple of Jesus without being on mission with Jesus. All true disciples are on mission. Folks, I don't know if you've been starting to to imagine the implications of all of this. What might this biblical understanding of who we are do to the kind of churches that we gather and become. It turns out if this is all true, then, then our purpose as a church can't simply be to get people together on a Sunday morning. It can't be to gather together to maintain old buildings and old traditions or to build new buildings and make new traditions. That can't be what this is all about. Our purpose isn't to sing songs and to to listen to presentations of all sorts for our entertainment. There must be something more. 
Our purpose is to gather and to do all that we can to encourage each other to follow Jesus and then to reach out and invite others to be a part of that. That is what we do here. That's why we're here. And I hope the clearer that we're becoming about who we are and what our purpose is might help us think about what what we ought to do with our time together, how we ought to structure our church life. I'm hoping in this moment that it might make it a little bit easier to understand some of the changes that we're making here in Kirkpatrick Memorial. We're making adjustments because we believe they'll help us to do better this stuff that I've been talking about just now. We want to be more and more a community of disciples making disciples. Last week, I talked in general terms about the the newly configured districts uh, that we are working on and have just recently uh, launched in our church life. I showed you a slide of three circles, if you remember it, um, where a discipleship group would be a place where people would meet to encourage one another, where they in turn would reach out to bless others in the church family and beyond that, out into our parish and beyond. I invited you, if you remember, to dream with me about a possibility that one day in the not-too-distant future, members of Kirkpatrick Memorial could really be in touch with each of the 3,000 households in our parish if we allow God to work through us in this way. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning uh, talking a little bit more about this transition that we're making into these new districts. By the way, anyone who's previously been part of a discipleship group or who has signed up to say you'd like to be part of a discipleship group you should have been invited by now to a gathering in this incoming week. Uh, This is the first time you'll be meeting together to to start to to be a a group together and to to think about all this vision that we've been sharing. If you were expecting to be invited to a group and you haven't been invited yet, can you please make sure you speak to Sam before you go today? And we will work on that early this week to ensure that any oversight there is cleared up. Let me talk for a moment to the people who have received an invitation to be in a a new discipleship group um, over the last few days. In some cases, assigning people to a group was totally straightforward and entirely obvious. If you live in a particular part of our parish and there are other people who live near you who are also members of the church here, naturally enough, you'll end up together in a group where you share life and and reach out together. That was relatively easy for us to make those kind of assignments. And you won't, I don't think, have too many questions about why you, you ended up in a particular group. Other people might have questions. And you might be asking, why was I assigned to this group? The truth is that assigning 200 people or thereabouts into discipleship groups and then another 400 or so members of the wider church into groups was quite an interesting exercise for us and quite demanding 
in many ways. It threw up all sorts of demanding questions, and I have time only to throw out a few of them to you. Which group should we assign a person to who lives in South Belfast or in Hollywood? Whenever we're building stuff around the, the church here, we have to think about that. What should we do if some parts of our parish are very heavily populated, where we'd have almost more people there than we would need to, to make an impact on that area, and other parts of our parish don't have people living in them hardly at all, but we, we feel called to try and reach those areas. What if we put people together strictly on the grounds of geography and discovered that everybody in one group was under 26 years of age and single, and the people in other groups were all married couples and as old as me or older? Would we tweak that to bring some balance? Or would we just run with it? Have to think about that stuff too. And what about people who have a particular missional interest in, in one or other part of our parish? Should we reflect that and allow them to, to go and to, to serve there? If you begin to think about those kinds of questions and others beyond it, you'll, you'll see that this was a multi- uh, faceted and complex exercise for us. Rather than trying to tackle all of those individual questions, I thought I'd give you an insight into the process that we've gone through uh, in the last while, uh, and then you'd, you'd have an insight into the steps that we've taken. We started off in the, the church office uh, using our database, our knowledge of our membership, and we had a go at building up 10 districts. Um, we knew that when we offered them, some of the complexity that I've just talked about here uh, was played out in some of those allocations that we tried to make. But we had a go at that. Then we passed that over to the elders of each of those 10 districts to have a look at and to provide us with some feedback. And, and each of the elders did that and engaged with that. And then last Monday evening, we brought all the elders together and we said, right, we've had your individual feedback. Now let's see if we can bring this all together. Uh, so we spent some time at our Kirk Session meeting last Monday evening uh, working on that. By the end of that evening, the elders agreed not only their own individual district, but they also corporately agreed the network of districts that we have established. So I want you to notice a couple of things about that process. One is that no elder chose their group. Their group was pretty much given to them. And the second thing is to notice that all the elders are in broad agreement about the network of groups that we've established. That'll help you understand where we are with this and, and how we arrived where we are. This, this might help you in your thinking about your group. The question we as elders were asking ourselves was not this. It wasn't how can I build the best group. The question is, how can we as a church family build the best network of groups to, to reach our, our parish for Christ? 
So that's a bit of an insight into the, the journey that we have been on and how we've got to where we are. Is it a flawed process? I'm sure it is. If we did it again, we'd have other flaws. But this is what we've done, and we were keen that you would know and that it would all be transparent for you. I have a sense uh, that at least for some of you that this is maybe a difficult moment because you've been together with people in a group for a long time and uh, that has changed. I thought it might help you to understand that this is a, a difficult moment for me too in case there's any sense of something being imposed um, that's easy for those who have made the decisions uh, without any regard to the consequences. I've been struggling with what we're doing here now for probably about a year and a half. Almost two years ago, the elders decided that they'd like to call an elders conference. Um, that was great. We, we do that from time to time. And they decided they'd like to get an external facilitator in to chair that, and I was genuinely delighted. Uh, I thought that was a good idea. Somebody else who could draw vision from all of us uh, rather than somebody like me being at the center of it. A small group of us met for a number of times with this facilitator to, to sort of work out what the issues were and build up an agenda. And the guys who were in that group will remember it didn't go very well at first. Um, we had met two or three times and we were still quite unclear about what we should be thinking about or what we should be talking about. And at one point, Jeremy, the, the facilitator, came to me and he said, Christoph, you're holding back. You're not really saying very much. You're not telling us what's on your heart and on your mind. And he was right. I was holding back for probably the first time in my time here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, I was scared, I was a chicken, I was afraid to say what I thought. You see, I knew what was in my heart. Over those years, maybe, maybe after year five of my time here, I started to, to sense that things needed to change here. I was fearful that we were, we were just on a trajectory that was going to take us to, to maybe grow gradually if, if God was going to continue to allow that, but that we would become some sort of mid-sized or even large, middle-class, complacent congregation. Glad just to draw a crowd of people and to feel good about doing that. But not discipling people well. And not calling them to the mission that God calls every follower of Jesus to. And that, that worried me. I felt called in a different way. I, I, I sensed that we needed to decentralize the church away from, from just this Sunday morning gathering into a network of discipling missional communities that God could use to build us all up and to reach others for him. I had all that in my heart, but I was scared stiff of talking about it. 
I didn't want to rock the boat, you see. I didn't want to upset people. I didn't want to upset you. Because I knew that if I started to talk about what I had on my mind, it would mean real change. That we'd have to change what we do with Sunday services, probably have less of them, to allow more time for discipling work, equipping work, sharing of life. And I knew that that would hurt some people. That would annoy those people who like and value formal church gatherings like this one and like the one we're going to have this evening. I knew as well, though, that for this to to be dynamic and to be all that it could be, we needed to overhaul our existing groups. So I was going to annoy another bunch of people, all the people who were in those groups and who were happy there and who were comfortable and enjoying them. I was going to annoy them too. Do you see now why I was afraid? Do you see now why I didn't want to bring that vision to the table? I had a sense that if, if we did the kinds of things that I had in my heart, that we'd probably manage to annoy everyone in the church all in one go. That's quite hard to do. If you put the drums in, you only annoy some people, the people who don't like drums. But this was going to probably annoy everyone. And you see... In the end, I'm not very different than you. I don't like annoying people. And I like to be liked. So that's why I was keeping quiet. Under God, Jeremy twisted my arm enough to get me talking. And under God, when I shared that vision with our elders at the, the elders' conference, which eventually happened, felt like nearly a year after it should have, when I shared the kinds of things that I've been talking about, the elders said, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like the journey God has been leading us on, and it sounds like the kind of steps that we should be trying to take. Folks, I was afraid when this all started, and I'm afraid now again, because we've come to the sharp end of the process, the moment when the change is actually happening. But I want you to know, and I don't often speak in these terms, I want you to know that it hasn't cost anyone here more than it's cost me. If you're clear about that, and I think we can walk together for God's glory. If you're struggling with this, know that you're not alone. Maybe you'll join in praying for me and for our elders and all others who are going to take a decisive step, which we believe is into God's purposes for us. Let me finish by suggesting how we go forward. How do you approach these new groups when you got that email or whatever form of invitation it was? Let me suggest three things. 
pray about it. How often do we get anxious and annoyed and suspicious before we've even talked to God about stuff? Let's pray about that. Thank him that you're part of a church family that it's at least trying to take your discipleship seriously and that at least wants to reach out to lost people for Jesus. Thank him for the good stuff. Pray. Come. Get along to your first meeting. If you've decided that you're not going to go, that you're going to wait and see what happens, see who else shows up, don't go along to that meeting. Wednesday night, get there. Don't let anything stop you. And a third thing, when you get there, wait. What I mean by that is be patient. Allow that it'll take a wee bit of time to get to know each other, to get to understand God's specific purpose for this group. If we can do those things, if we can pray and lay it before the Lord, if we can commit ourselves to going and being involved, and if we can, can be patient, can wait. Then I believe that God can do a, a wonderful thing through this courageous step that we all take together. Let me pray. Father God, we wouldn't have to struggle with all of these things if we were content to ignore you and your call on our lives and your call on our church. But Lord, we don't want to ignore you or your call on us. We want to be your people and we want to be your people together. Lord, we want to take whatever steps are necessary to better live out your calling on us. Lord, if this step that we're trying to take just now is yours, then, Lord, let it fly. Let us look back in six months' time and say, that was costly, but it was worth it. Lord, if this is not of you, we're very happy for the whole thing to collapse. And then we'll go back and we'll listen to you again and we'll see what your call really was. Lord, help us, each one of us, to be mature and loving and gracious and kind and courageous in these days as we think about all these things. Amen.